the text that we are in in our study. Picking it up in verse 16 this week. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When therefore they had rowed about three and four mi- or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was the land to which they were going. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we do indeed want to open the word of God and be reminded of the fact that this is the revealed word from you, the truth that has been provided for us. Father, that it is able to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It is the revelation of you and, Father, of your Son, And as we open up the word of God this morning again, we are dependent upon the spirit of God to teach and instruct us. And we pray, Father, that this would be more than just words to us. Once again this morning, we come to a familiar miracle. And yet we know the world today has discounted this miracle and others who even know it as believers take it for granted and fail to see who you are and what you're doing. So we pray, Father, and ask you to use the word of God in our lives. Challenge us, Father, in our knowledge and understanding of you, that we might love you as we just sung a few moments ago. Indeed, more and more. We commit the study of the word of God with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. We've entitled this morning's message, as you can see, Jesus, who we've been looking at here, not just a man. Now, you've heard enough messages from me to challenge us regarding him being a good teacher and so forth and so on. But he's not just a man, and he is different from us. And you might first look at the outline and say, well, I don't see the relevance to what we have here today. Hopefully you will. Was Jesus Christ indeed a man, or is he a man? The answer is yes, in every sense. Let us not lose sight of that. Jesus Christ, first of all, I should mention this right away, is unique. Fully God, fully man. But in every sense was a man. For example, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, the writer there says, We have seen with our eyes. We have held with our hands. And we have handled. People saw Jesus Christ physically. They touched him. They handled him. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 It clearly brings out as it deals with the nation of Israel that he himself, though flesh was not a part of him, he took part of the flesh by coming to earth. John chapter 1 verse 14 that we have already studied earlier on in this book told us a very very familiar passage to us that the word who we identified as Jesus Christ was made flesh. And he tabernacled, he dwelt, he was among us as what a man in every sense of the word. And I could go on and on this morning. 
He ate. He drank. He felt pain. He had emotions and felt compassion. He cried. We already saw in our study in this particular gospel account that he was weary, John chapter 4, and tired. So in every sense of the word, just like you and I are human beings, he was a man. Also, we know that he was more than a man because as unique, he is also God. Matthew chapter 1, for example, in verse 18 says that that which was born of Mary was of the Holy Spirit. This was not just the seed of man. Uh, not the seed of man is technically correct. He was of the Holy Spirit. Then when you come to verse 23 in Matthew's account, he explains who this person is by saying this is God with us, as it explains the term Emmanuel leaving no doubt whatsoever who this is. And if we still haven't caught it, it isn't changing by the time we get to the epistles because Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, in him, that is Jesus Christ, in him, listen to the next word, all, and he means exactly what he says, all, the fullness of deity. In him, that is in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It couldn't be any clearer. You don't have to have a graduate education to understand those terms. You don't have to have an education at all. It's very clear that Jesus Christ is a man and he is God, fully explaining monogenes, meaning that he is unique, fully God, fully man. That's who Jesus Christ is. And let us not forget, let me take you there, since you're in John, to once again, and you will see this over and over and over as I exegete this book to you. Go to John chapter 20 again. If you do not understand this, I don't care how many times you read the Gospel of John, you've missed the point. There are those who can quote verses backwards and forward out of this gospel and don't know why it was written. But the purpose of this presentation of this gospel account is found in John chapter 20, which is where we began when we studied this book, began our study of the book. Verses 30 and 31, let us not take this for granted. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, John? Help me, verse 31. But, contrast, these have been written. In other words, whatever you find in the gospel according to John, why was it written? Here is his personal explanation. Purpose, that you may believe. Believe what? That Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Why is that important, he tells us? And that believing you might have life through his name. The whole purpose in writing this gospel account and recording the events, including the one that I've just read to you this morning, the whole purpose of that 
is that as John has specifically chosen specific signs so that through those we might have revealed to us that this Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and that by believing we might have life through his name that is known as eternal life, that is known as salvation, that is known as being saved, that is known as being a believer, being born again. All of that means the same thing. For the Jew, the Jew would come to this account and they needed to see what is the criteria for the Messiah because they had the Old Testament. And they knew there were certain criteria. And so this gospel account has been written, though Matthew is specifically directed to the Jew. The Jews could pick this up and from the signs that have been put here, recognize, first of all, as we've already studied, that John came before him to announce him and then pointed to him as the Lamb of God, which should have revealed Psalm 22, which should have revealed Isaiah 53, and to the Jewish mind already getting them prepared. And then as they continue to understand their Old Testament, to realize from these signs and these miracles that, yes, the credentials are there. This is the Messiah. That's the purpose. So where are we? Well, we're in John chapter 6 now, and we come to the fifth sign that he is presenting to us. We left off last week where he had fed the 5,000 plus, and I'll leave you to determine how many were there. That's all that I know. Was it 10,000? Was it 15,000? Was it 20,000? All I know is it was 5,000 plus because the 5,000 were just the men, and we know they were women and children. But that's where we left off. And now, in presenting this sign to us, that which we just read in verses 16 to 21, he is presenting another sign to us so that we would know, as I have in the title here, that Jesus is different. He is the Messiah. Yes, he's a man, but he's not just a man. He's the one. He's the Messiah. And I want to say this to you because as I read and uh, compare and study and so forth, this is referred to as a miracle. No, 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 listen to me. There are several miracles in this passage. Several, in case you didn't notice. It's plural. It's not really singular. Not just the walking in the water. That's only one of them. You'll see that as we go. There are several miracles in this account. Why? To demonstrate. Now, what I chose to show, put to us is to de demonstrate who Jesus is and that he's different. And I chose to say by his prayer. You, obviously, the second one's there, the power and also his patience shows how different he is from us. What's the setting? Well, as we look at the setting, as I said last week, we had 5,000 plus, and they're on the grassy hillside of what we now know as the Golan Heights. They're up near the Sea of Galilee, which in a few moments, not yet, but I'll have a picture of that for you. Uh, so because you can appreciate this text, I hope a little bit better in a few moments. Everything was calm, it was serene, the, the setting was there, and uh, it was evening setting in, and, and so forth. And now, as we compare the text, what we find with the people, first of all, is let's not forget verse 15 of chapter 6. Let's look at it, John chapter 6, verse 15, where we left off. Jesus knew that they were coming to take him by force. Why? Here it is, to make him king. Now, to the normal contemporary 
Christian today, there would be a scream there, guaranteed. Oh, how wonderful. Bring him to Jesus. Hey, let's get him and let's make him king. He knew that their motives were wrong and they missed the real boat. He knew that their concept was to make him king for their own purposes because, as we've already studied, they received something from him. They were fed. And because of the benefits of miracles, all they wanted was physical blessings. And as we know in our study of the word of God, they wanted to set him up as king because their concept of the Messiah was not the Isaiah 53. Their concept was only that he would come in as a ruler, and they were thinking to overcome Rome. They were looking for their own benefit. They weren't looking for the glory of God in spite of whatever they said. And Jesus knew it. So he didn't give in to them. They wanted a national uprising. So what did he do? I want you to turn with me. Keep your finger here. We'll get to this text, but you have to look at the other ones. Go to Mark chapter 6 for a moment. Keep your finger here. Turn to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, so you get the proper context and the proper scenario. When you look at verses 45 and 46, we get the picture as to what's happening. Verse 45, and immediately he made his disciples, this is Jesus is doing this, he made them get into the boat, go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. Then what happened? While he himself was sending the multitude away. Who sent the multitude away? Jesus sent them away. Verse 46, and after bidding them farewell, what did he do? He departed to the mountain. Why? To pray. So the real scenario, the introduction here, or the setting is that as far as the people are concerned, Jesus not only didn't want to be king in the way they wanted it, he sent them away. He fed them. They were full, remember. Now he sends them away. As far as his disciples, don't miss this, he sends, because if you notice, John talks about Capernaum. So to get the whole picture, we need to see this. He sends them away from the mountain, and he says, go to Bethsaida, and he goes away to pray. So he's praying. He sends his disciples away before him. He sends the people away. They were on the east side, and then we're going to see that they move from there to Capernaum because the Lord doesn't come. Now, how do we see, first of all, the difference in prayer, since we know he's going to prayer? I want to point out a couple of things that I think are different from us in how we can see how Jesus was more than a man. might sound simple to you, but let's remember this. Go back to John chapter 6. We saw that he's going to pray. You remember what he already did? In John chapter 6, when he fed the 5,000 last week, do you notice how simple he was? Totally unlike us. I pointed it out a little bit, but in verse 11. Jesus, therefore, took the loaves, and how did he pray? He gave thanks. Plain and simple. He was not like sometimes we are. We think that if we have a biblical dissertation in our prayer life, God is going to really think and pay attention. Watch the prayer life of Jesus. It's pretty simple. You're going to see another one today. And by the way, Peter had a pretty good prayer life too. He just said, help, I'm sinking. And let me give you give, let, give me a prelude to that one. If he went on for a dissertation, he would have drowned. 
really. Sometimes we lose focus of that. You know something? He gave thanks, and we don't know what he prayed about when he was in the mountain because the scripture doesn't reveal and anybody can say whatever they want about it. But I tell you this much. One thing we do know, and this is what I want you to get, he went into the mountain because of his relationship and his fellowship with the Father. He wanted to be away from the disciples. He wanted to be away from the busyness. He wanted to be away from the people, not that he wasn't ready to minister to them all the time. You and I need that. In fact, when you come to the New Testament and you talk about, when you talk about people standing in this pulpit, when you talk about anyone that stands in a pulpit or teaches the word of God, if you're an elder, you need to be committed to two things. One is to the word of God, and the second one is to prayer. Because that's what the apostles were committed to. Too many people today are committed to all kinds of things besides reading the word. They don't spend the time reading, and they don't spend the time in prayer. What's the purpose of prayer? If we're honest, I'll talk about myself and see if it's true with you. Many times when we go to prayer, our prayer life is, God, give me this. God, please get me out of this situation. God, please help me change this circumstance. God, I want. God, give me. Isn't that true? Most of the time, that's our prayer life. I don't see that with Christ. I don't see that. He saw it as a time. That's why even when you think of the Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father who art in heaven. Starts right off with, many people use that for words in their own prayer. The whole idea is who are we coming before? It's a relationship. Our prayer life is time with God. It's for fellowship. Is our prayer time for fellowship? Let me challenge you on that. When you look at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he showed how he was different because when he got alone to pray, even when he called forth Lazarus from the grave, what's the first thing he did? We're not even to John chapter 11 yet. He thanked so that the people would know who it was and what the relationship was. He knew what he was going to do. Last week, didn't it tell us? He already knew he was going to multiply the, the fish and the loaves. What did he do? He thanked God. It was relationship. Now, are you trying to tell us, Pastor Dan, that we should not or it's wrong to ask God to help us or to get us? Not at all. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. If you ever wanted to memorize that verse and you say, well, not really, but you want to memorize it now, well, I'm not so sure. Let me tell you how to memorize that verse. Very easy. I hope I get it right. The first, the first word gives you the whole verse. The first word is ask. Now watch the rest of the verse. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. A-S-K, ask. Ask, seek, and knock. God wants us to come to him. He wants us to ask him. In fact, James, doesn't he tell us in chapter 4, you don't have because you haven't asked. So I am not saying to you, don't go out of here and don't misunderstand that. I am not saying to you, don't go to God and ask him and ask him to help you. But our prayer life should go way beyond that. And our prayer life should reflect fellowship. How about going to God and asking him this, God, help me to understand you better. God, strengthen me spiritually. I don't know if I'm going to make it through this trial, but you give me the strength. God, help me to grow 
Why? Because through every trial and tribulation that we come into, God says it's for purposes for us to grow. And we're going to see they got a big trial in front of them. That's the way our prayer life should be. In fact, for just a moment, you've seen this before, but go to Ephesians chapter 1. Keep your finger in John. Ephesians chapter 1. How many of us really pray this way? Watch. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me pick it up in verse 16. Paul says, he does not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. How did he pray for other believers? Watch. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom. What type of wisdom? And of revelation. Where? What's the content? And the knowledge of him. Do we pray that way? God, help me to grow in my knowledge of who you really are. Help me to understand. I'm going to tell you this. The more you understand the God that you have trusted for salvation, the less you will worry. The more you understand his person and his power and his majesty, the more you will worship him in spirit and in truth. Guaranteed. He prayed for this. And then he says, watch this, verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that you might know what the hope of his calling is. There are believers running all over this country, all over this world that have no clue as to what they're supposed to be doing. Oh, they think they do. But they're not growing in the knowledge of Christ. They're not understanding the great calling. What do you mean? Look at what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? We're worried about our inheritance here. We're worried about things related to this world. How about verse 19? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power where? Toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about through Christ. That's how he prayed. Go to chapter 3, same book quickly, of Ephesians, chapter 3. I won't read it all, but I'll bounce over it. In ver Many people know this passage out of context. Look at the context. For this reason, verse 14, I bow my knees. He's praying. And then notice what he says. Verse 16, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be what? Out of that trial. What? To have every physical provision. No, he says, verse 16, to be strengthened with power through the spirit where? In the inner man. Why? So that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. He's talking to believers. And that you might be rooted and grounded what? In love. What else? That you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know, that's talking about personal knowledge. To know the love of Christ. You see, whatever the trial is, and that's where he gets into is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That's the context. It's in prayer. And the Lord Jesus Christ sent them away, and he got alone privately for fellowship with the Father in prayer. And that's what our prayer life should reflect. Fellowship with God. Oh, I challenge you on this right away this morning. How our relationship with God will change when we see Jesus Christ in God more than a genie in a bottle that I rub a lamp and help me get out of this situation. And no Christian would ever say that they do that, but we do. 
He just gave thanks and sent them away. He wasn't, he knew what they were going to go into in a trial. I don't know, listen to me carefully, it's on tape. I don't know, and it's a personal opinion. But I've got to believe that he was praying for them when he went to that mountain. Why? Because he knew what they were about to face. And he prayed for their faith. And one of the reasons I say that is because what it does say, and he says, oh, ye of little faith, he wants their faith to be increased. And they, for the most part, missed it in the trial again. Again. They just panicked and wanted to get out of it. He demonstrates it in his power, obviously, in the text. Now let's talk about, go back to John chapter 6, the Sea of Galilee for a minute. Let me just give you a, a very brief picture this morning so we have some idea. Would you put that up on the screen for me? Just, we could all turn to maps in our Bible, but I don't know what your map's going to look like and my map's going to look like. But let's get this picture. First of all, the Sea of Galilee is presented there. That's a nice little blue spot on a map. What in the world does that mean? I want you to know that it's not very big. It's about seven miles, okay, by 12. It's about seven miles this way and about 12 miles that way. So length, about 12 miles. And so it's not very big. Secondly, most of the time it appears calm. Some of you have been to Israel. We've been there as a church, a number of people. And some of you have gone across from Tiberias and gone across the sea. And it was as calm as it is outside. And you look at it, and I know I did when I was on the boat, and I've done it a few times. Gone on the boat and said, man, how in the world could you get a big storm like that? You know, in a small place like this, and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, first of all, the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And the Mediterranean Sea is off over here. And where you got, it says Tiberius here and so forth. And what you've got is hills here. And, some, and what happens, and you can still read this today because it still happens today. I have not seen it happen. But what happens is sometimes the winds from the Mediterranean come over. They come over those hills, and then they equate it to today. What I've read about is they say it's like squalls. Now, the only thing I can relate to is like a snow squall. And when it comes in, it's blinding. It hits quick, and it's gone. And these still today, these storms do come in on that small Sea of Galilee, and when they come in like that, they are ferocious, according to people that still even today face them. And they face them. And I want you to notice that they're on this, in this situation. They have been up here in the Golan Heights with the Lord. He has sent them down to this area, and he wanted them to go there. Okay? They go there, and then they're going to sail, try to sail from that spot over to here, to Capernaum. Now, that doesn't look very big on the map, and guess what? It's not. Keep that in perspective. This might not be a good and fair comparison, but it, it is pretty close. If you can think of Salisbury Beach, I'm sorry, Seabrook Beach, and think of going from Seabrook by boat to Hampton, that's not too far. Not going to take you a long time. That's where they got to go, okay? And further... These are experienced. Not all of the apostles were fishermen, but several were. You can keep that up for a second. They are experienced fishermen, and they have to travel. Now, they have wanted to go this distance, and according to the passage, they have been rowing. I lost my pointer here. Well, you know where it is. They have been rowing for several hours because we know the change that's happened. And so for rowing several hours, experienced fishermen, and I'm going to tell you where they end up. 
they end up, according to the scriptures, right there. That's where they end up when Jesus appears to them. Right in the middle of the lake. Three and a half miles in the center. It's only seven miles wide. There's someplace over here. And these guys know where they're going to navigate. That's how bad the storm was. They're in the middle of the lake. And we're going to see the power of the Lord. And, and what happens here? Well, what happens is the Lord had sent them. They've been working hard. Go back to Mark chapter 6 for a moment. Keep that up, please. Well, no, you can take it down. Let's take that down. Mark chapter 6. Look at verse 48. In verse 48, and seeing them, watch, straining at the oars. These are experienced sailors that's only got to go a short distance, maybe a half an hour. For hours they've been fighting this storm, and they are straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. It's now 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the morning. And what happens? They're basically giving up hope. These are experienced sailors, experienced on the sea. They're rowing with all their energy, and what is happening, he comes and walks to them on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. That's amazing. That's amazing, verse 48. Now, one other thing I need to put in perspective before we talk about this trial. First of all, I want you to notice that the Lord delayed. That's very common with the Lord. We want everything now. God, I'm in the trial. Help me get out of this. He let them fight the storm for hours to see if they would turn to him. They haven't done it. Have you ever gotten into a trial, into a situation, and you say, well, I'm a believer. I know the Lord. How well do you know the Lord? And all of a sudden, he's not big enough to handle your situation, and you try everything possible every other way. That's what these men are doing. They're rowing. You want another one? Hold on. He had already stilled the sea in their presence. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now stay with me. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 8 and go to Matthew chapter 14. Just for a second. You read Matthew chapter 14 in responsive reading. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 14, watch, verse 27. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I, be not afraid. This is when he's coming to them. Then you notice verse 31, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? See, I told you he's dealing with their faith. Now that's when it happens. Now go back to Matthew chapter 8 and look at this. Verse 20. This is chapter 8, not chapter 14. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. He himself was asleep. They came to him and awoke, and they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Verse 26, he said to them, Why are you timid, 
oh, you men of little faith. Now watch his lengthy prayer. He arose and rebuked the winds, and what happened? They stopped. That's it. Not a long prayer, just stop. That's his power. They stopped. They, I want you to catch this. They had seen that happen with him in the boats. Not, short, not long after that now, he sends them into the same sea. Another storm arises. Only one thing's changed. Jesus is not in the boat this time. They knew his power. They saw what he did. They just saw him feed 5,000 people. And they made no connection in their faith because the trial appeared bigger. And their, not just salvation, but their victory in the trial rested the same place. With the same Lord who, when he was in the boat, said to the wind, stop, and it stopped. No connection whatsoever. Why the timing then? Now go back to John chapter 6, because his action that he's going to take, he wanted them to face the trial and to grow through it and test their faith so that they would turn to him. All of that is what is the background to John chapter 6. Because it picks it up in verse 16, and it says, Evening came, and his disciples went down to the sea. They crossed over to Capernaum. That's what I showed you on the map. They went to where he said he didn't show up. They went to go to Capernaum, which was a short distance away. And what happened? It was already dark, and he hadn't come. Why? He's praying. The sea began to be stirred up, verse 18, and it's blowing. And notice this, they had rowed, verse 19, this is what I said to you, for three or four miles, it's only seven miles long. They were to hug the seashore, and the storm was so great, it pushed them three to four miles away. And they still hadn't turned to the Lord. And then what happens? He comes to them and says, be not afraid. They are in the storm, and the Lord Jesus Christ comes down from the mountain from praying. Where is his power seen? How can we see that he's not just a man? How can we see that he's the Messiah? And for those of you who say, I am a believer, what type of Savior do you have? Is he all-powerful? Is he able to deliver you in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your difficulties? Is that the same one that died on the cross? Absolutely. Is he still today in control of all things? Does he know about that cancer? Does he know about that lost job? Does he know about those circumstances that you're facing and the trials and, and the persecution you're getting at work and the situation with your neighbors and how you fear going back to early this morning and how you fear going out to a neighborhood cold turkey? Does he know all those things and can give you strength and enable you to get through all those trials? The answer is yes, but do you know that? Can you make that connection to get out of your comfort zone and to let God use you the way he wants to? Or are the trials so enormous that you're looking at the trials 
even though God has delivered you so many times. When I look at my personal life and I see the things that God has delivered me out of and the way God has provided for me, there is absolutely no, I don't care what the circumstances in this church or my life personally, and I'm telling you that publicly. I might struggle. I might weep. I might feel pain, but I'm going to tell you something, and I mean what I'm about to say. There isn't anything that God brings into this church or into my life that he cannot deliver me from and not deliver us from. And if we keep our eyes focused on him and not the storms, you just watch what he will do. In your life, if you keep your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and do what he wants, not what everybody else around you wants, you start satisfying people, you start satisfying the thinking of today, and you'll get all that comes with it, and you'll have nothing in glory. But you rely on his strength and do what the world doesn't want you to do. And you stand up for the truth. And you do what you're supposed to do, and you have a prayer life that's worthy where you're building that relationship with God, and you watch God work in your life. In fact, he has promised that he will never forsake us and never leave us. He has given us the indwelling Holy Spirit today, and he, we have always got that power within us to strengthen us and encourage us in every single trial. To Peter's credit, he got courage. You know, we criticize Peter, but I'm going to tell you something. He maybe didn't think a lot, but he was the first one to volunteer. Lord, let me come out. And by the way, to get the picture, you want to see the Lord's power again? Here's the storm pushing them back, and the Lord walks, and he's going faster than the boat against the storm. It's nothing. In fact, when he gets to the boat, he'll stop it just like that. That's the second miracle. You want to see another miracle? He gets to the boat and already to the other side. They were just three to four miles, according to the biblical account, three to four miles. They were way away from shore. And I'm going to tell you something. Forget what people are saying about a sandbar coming up. Forget what people are saying about no miracle and he was already at the seashore and he tricked them. No way. My Savior, who was in control of the storms, stopped the storm, stopped the storm of their heart, comforted them, strengthened them in their faith, and brought them right to where he wanted them, right at the other shore, miraculously. Miraculously. Where do we see the patience? Oh, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have that patience. No way. God! Help! The storms, the water. I forgot about the 5,000. Oh, I forgot you stilled the storm before. Help me. And with my prayer, like I said with Peter's, if it was long, he just simply said, help. I would have sunk. I would have been trying to pray this long, elaborate prayer, and it would have drowned. Lord's patient. They didn't make the connection. He continues to teach them, and I'm going to tell you this, God will continue to teach you. He will continue to teach me. He will allow, if you're a believer here today and trials have not come into your life, get ready because they're coming. 
young or old. Why? Because God uses trials to help us to grow. And there's not a storm that will come your, your way that God will not use in your life if you let him. And I'm going to tell you something else. Unless you go through trials, you will never be a skilled Christian. What do you mean, Pastor Dan? You know, I would rather be on a ship with a sailor or a pilot who's been through the storms and knows how to navigate than to be on a boat with somebody who says, I know everything I'm supposed to do. Have you ever been in a storm? No. Uh, sorry, I'm taking a different boat. Right? How would you like to go to a surgeon and say, oh, I just got out of medical school. I know the books. Don't worry about it. How many surgeries have you performed? None. What are you about to do? Open heart surgery. No problem. Um, can I have someone else there at least that's got some experience? Wouldn't you want that? It's true in the Christian life. See, we don't want trials. Don't push them away. Because unless you go through the trials and unless God shows you his greatness and shows you how important it is to follow him and not man and to let him take you through the trials so you can grow, you're not going to know how to handle things. That includes even doctrinally. Sometimes you get challenged and so forth. That's why you're able to discern between truth and error. Because you know what the word says. Because you've been through a trial and see what happens when you follow false doctrine. It has application in every area of our life. It's hard to keep our focus. Time's gotten away from me. But I'll, let me give you this. Look it up on your own. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, in verses 7 and 8, you can look it up on, on, your, on your own. That's Hezekiah and King Sennacherib. And you know what? The king came in and he had defeated a lot of armies and he said basically this. He said, don't get your people to turn to God. I've defeated all the other gods. There isn't any god that can deliver you out of my hand. I am going to destroy you. Don't listen to your king. Hezekiah just went to God and God said, I'll take care of him basically. And you know what? Not only did Hezekiah get the victory, but I tell you this, the king... Sennacherib got killed by his own people because God gave the victory. Because Hezekiah had the strength and to bring it to his people to say, you know what, it doesn't matter what size we are, we can trust God and God will give us the victory. And he did. And God will do that for the believer. We need to have the right response. And with that response, he says, be not afraid, it is I. Now I know that they said it was a ghost. They didn't know it was him at first. But you notice he received them, and they're to the other side. One last passage in closing. Go back to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. So don't just see the stilling of the water, the stilling of the storm, the walking on water. Those are all miracles. Why? To show you that Jesus is the Christ. Did they finally get it? Well... We'll let the scriptures determine that. Matthew 14 and verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. They're starting to get it. They're starting to get it. They knew that none of their human effort. Let me start with salvation. You can look at Jesus and think he's a good teacher. You can look at the Lord Jesus Christ and think he's just a man, an angel, whatever else. Religions put everything on him, but he's more than that. 
He has a relationship with his father demonstrated in prayer. He's got power over everything because as we saw today in the singing, he's created it all. And he's patient with us. All men are sinners and have come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned. There isn't anything that you can do by human effort, religiously, to be good, to make yourself better for God and acceptable to him. Salvation is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he reaches out, and these miracles that are here, even in John's account, is so that you'd come to that place to realize that this is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and God says when you come to that place and realize that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and you believe in him, you place your faith in him, not in yourselves, not in works, not in religion, not even in professing Christianity, which is so mixed up today. But you place it in the person of Christ, you will be given eternal life. You will have salvation. It's only found in him. But let's not forget, this is the disciples, and I speak to believers now. Trials come, and they are overwhelming many, many times. But they're designed to help us to grow. They're designed to help us to depend upon Christ. They're designed to help us to follow him. And many times that means leaving behind. Many times that means, even Paul said that, I have to forget the things that are behind. I've got to press forward. I've got to move on with God and follow him and grow in my relationship with him. I've got to understand him better and depend upon him. His disciples would have done no good, though they had forgotten the water being made wine, though they had forgotten about the man who had been healed, though they had forgotten very recently about the 5,000 being fed, and though John chose not to put it in here, and they had forgotten apparently about him stilling the storm, God's patient. And God still was using this particular trial to help them to learn, you know what? Depend upon me. Trust me. Walk with me. And just like he reached down to Peter and took him by the hand, in a sense, by application, that's what he's looking for us to do. To let Christ take us by the hand and say, I'll guide you. I'll guide you. Walk with me. Stay close to me. And believer, he will bless your life. Spend our time growing through our trials. Don't look at the storm. Don't look at all the difficulties around you. Christ will never forsake you. He will help you to grow because he'll get the glory. And you'll look to him and truly, as we just sang, be saying, I love you, Lord Jesus, with all my heart. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we're human. As men and women, we face trials, and honestly, Father, they're so overwhelming to us at times. And honestly, we fail to look to you as we should. We, we sometimes verbalize it, but in our heart, we have fear. We are frightened. We don't trust the way we should. But, Father, we thank you that we serve a great Savior. We thank you you are so patient with us that, Father, what you have started and you've begun, you will continue until the day of redemption. We thank you that you're continuing to work in each and every believer. Help us to trust you more. Help us to be excited about the things of God. 
and help us to make connection between the things that you're doing and you've done and the things that are going on in our life. And our prayer, Father, for anyone who has not yet trusted in Christ, help them to see that Jesus Christ is more than a man. He's fully God, fully man. That he satisfied the payment for our sin in the cross of Calvary. Help them to come to trust in him. We know, Father, that all we can do is sow the seed. But unless you change your heart and draw a person to Christ, they won't come. And our heart's prayer is that you'd open up the understanding of those who do not know Christ. That they might reach out as Peter did and take Christ at his word. And that, Father, they might come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might give them life. Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. And that, Father, they might walk with you. Thank you now for the time that we'll have together. We pray you got our afternoon and help us to live for thee. We thank you that we serve a great Savior, and we do say that we love you, Lord Jesus, with all of our heart. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.